All right. I am hitting record here for several people who wanted to make sure they got a recording. Um, some of our time is going to be spent in discussion, some of it in teaching. I'll probably record the teaching stuff. The discussion stuff uh, is difficult to uh, record because it's just hard to hear. So, um, And that way you don't have to worry about um, who knows you know, what your, where your statement's going to go. I know that can be a little bit, uh, for some of us, a little bit anxiety-producing. Uh, so um, today, we're mainly going to be talking a bit bigger, bigger picture. So we're not going to dive into the nitty-gritty of the, of the Book of Common Prayer. But I do want to give you an overview of what's in here um, as, as we begin. Okay, So we're going to get more into this next week. But does everybody have a copy? We have some cop. We have several copies that are, yeah, like little red books that are that we have uh, over in the in the chapel. Um, so let let's just open to the table of contents. I just want to give you an idea of what's in here, and then um, and again we'll we'll probably close the book for now, and then zoom out and talk about prayer in general and what it's for. So. Um, if you open up to the table of contents, it's one of the first pages there. And the, the, the book here is the 1979 Book of Common Prayer. So if you have one of your own copy, um, just make sure it's the 1979 Book of Common Prayer. We'll talk next week a bit about why it's called the 1979 Book of Common Prayer and the history of books of common prayer and how that all works. We'll, talk, uh, we'll get, we'll get a bit, bit more nerdy next week. But uh, this week, if you turn to the table of contents... Um, what's in here, as it says on the title page, is the Book of Common Prayer and administration of the sacraments and other rites and ceremonies of the church. Okay, so this is, um, it's everything, basically, that you need to be the church. Um, so, you guys at the table of contents there? So there's some preliminary stuff, there's some overall stuff about worship that's pretty interesting, actually. Um, the church calendar, which is essentially gives you like feast days, you know, different uh, saints days and, and holy days and things like that. And then it gets into the daily office. We're going to spend most of our time as we get into this in the daily office, because this is uh, what I'm hoping, full disclosure, I'm hoping that you walk away not with just some academic knowledge about the Book of Common Prayer, but I'm hopeful that you walk away with uh, inspiration to use the Book of Common Prayer in your own prayer life, in your own daily prayer life. And we'll talk more about that uh, today. So daily office, there's lots of options here. Anytime you see something that says write one, so you'll notice the first two entries under the daily office are morning and evening prayer, write one. Write one tends to be traditional language, these and thous. When the Book of Common Prayer was written, church was still done in these and thous, and that was very important for some people, but they also realized, hey, I think we need to modernize the language, like we don't ever talk this way except in church. So, so right two tends to be more modern language in any given case. And you, you guys will see that. So, um, so right one is traditional language. Right two is modern language. Daily morning prayer, right two, page 75. That's where we're going to be spending a lot of our time uh, in the weeks to come. And so you're welcome to uh, explore that on your own uh, if you would like. That's actually going to be one of the assignments I'm giving assignments to in this class, so I hope that's okay. Um, what's that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you don't want to do the assignment, you don't have to. It's fine. It's no big deal. So anyway. Um, so daily morning prayer, right two. Um, and then noonday prayer. There's an order of evening for an order of worship for the evening. Um, daily evening prayer, right two. Compline, which is like bedtime prayer. 
Um, and then uh, we've got a couple other options, daily devotionals for individuals and families, and a table of suggested canticles. Again, we'll talk more about that as we get into it. The Great Litany, um, and then we've got the Collex, traditional, which is the traditional language Collex. Then we've got the contemporary language Collex. We'll talk more about what Collex are uh, later in the course, but that's like a uh, set of prayers for holy days, but also for each Sunday of the year. So every Every day of the year, there's a collect that we're praying together. Um, and so that you'll notice in worship on, um, uh, in just a few moments, we pray a collect right after the, we sing the Gloria. We always pray a prayer. The celebrant prays a prayer on our behalf as the church. That's the collect of the day. And that can be prayed throughout the week. Um, so that's where we get those, the collects. Uh, and then there's some proper liturgies for special days. So Ash Wednesday, Palm Sunday, different times when the liturgy looks a little different. And then we've got Holy Baptism, which that's the liturgy for when we're having a baptism. Um, And then the Holy Eucharist, which is that's what we do on Sundays. Um, We do uh, the Holy Eucharist Rite 2 again, which starts on page 355. We'll talk more about that later in the course. There's some pastoral offices like burial of the dead, confirmation, marriage, that kind of stuff. There's something called Episcopal offices, which are church services that a bishop leads. So there's certain things in the Anglican church that only a bishop can do. Um, Ordain, bishops ordain, uh, bishops confirm. um, And that's, um, that's, those are those liturgies there. A large portion of the book is the Psalter, the Psalms of David. And so you'll see the middle part there is a translation of the Psalms that is written specifically for call and response. And so we'll talk more about that as we get into it. There's an outline of the faith or a catechism, or sorry, I forgot, prayers and thanksgivings. These are just random prayers and thanksgivings, so you can look those up. Um, there's, there's a prayer for every occasion, um, typically speaking. And then there's an outline of the faith or a catechism. That's actually not a bad uh, outline of the faith. It's, uh, it's a good catechism, actually. Um, and then the historical documents of the church, including the articles of religion. Table for finding the date of Easter and other holy days. Um, I don't ever use that. I just Google it um, to try to figure out when when's Easter, uh, which is what I recommend. Uh, and then at the end of the Book of Common Prayer are the lectionaries. So we've got the lectionary on page 888, which is a three-year cycle. Uh, and those are the scriptures that we use in worship on Sundays. That's the revised common lectionary. And then there's the daily office lectionary. The daily office, again, is daily prayer. Those are the scriptures that we use in daily prayer. And morning and evening prayer. And those are also, that's a two-year cycle, uh, year one and two. And the three-year cycle is year A, B, and C. So everything that we do as a church is in this book, essentially. Um, and so, it, you know, there's, there's ways of using it that we're, we'll, we'll dive into, depending on how nerdy y'all want to get. But everything that we do as a church is basically outlined in this book. There's an Episcopal priest that I know who, uh, when people visit her church um, and they comment on the lovely service, what a lovely service it was. She always says, thanks, we read it out of a book. You know, like that's like, that's, you know, like we didn't come up with this. You know, it's not like every week we uh, try to come up with a creative new way to do X, Y, or Z. It's in the book. We just read what's in the book. Um, now, there's obviously uh, different parts of our liturgy. The sermon, obviously, is something new uh, every week, but... Um, For the most part, our prayers are here in this book. So 
We'll talk more about the history of the Book of Common Prayer next week. Okay, but I just wanted to give you an overview of what's in here so that you could maybe begin to explore. Um, maybe a good thing to do this week would be to just explore morning prayer, which again begins on page 75, right to. And just look through that this week as you have time and just see if you can figure out what's going on. It's a little bit uh, difficult uh, to figure out what's going on. But if you read the instructions, there are typically ways of saying, okay, I think I see the outline of what's happening here. And we'll talk more about that next week where like, what is the outline of morning prayer? How do we, how can we use morning prayer for our own prayer life? Okay. So that's that. I just wanted to give you an overview before we dive in. Sound good? Um, yes, you're welcome to borrow uh, one of those, uh, Books of Common Prayer. We don't typically use them. Um, they're just available in the pews uh, on Sunday, and so you're welcome to borrow one. Yeah, for sure. We actually had a church. You'll notice there's a church name at the front of those. We had a church donate all of these to us. There's like 75 of these that um, we didn't have to buy, so that was nice. So, um, All right. So that's probably enough of that. Sound good? All right. Yes, Question. Resume on the recording here. Ton, tons of both uh, answers about why prayer is important that have caused us maybe to, to veer away from it or to be confused about it at least. To be like, well, if God, if God already knows what I need, then why am I praying for my needs, right? You know? Or uh, it's maybe even repulsive to think that if I have to storm the gates of heaven to get anything good to happen, well, what does that mean about God? I don't want to pray to this God. I don't want to even know this God. Um, if this is what prayer is for. But if God is loving and God, um, you know, knows what I need, well, then why, like, what is prayer for then? What are we, what are we actually doing when uh, we're praying? So I want to talk, I want to use the quotes on that little handout just to talk a little bit about why we pray as Christians and why praying liturgically makes sense. That's the only two things that I want to do today uh, before, we're, uh, before we're done. So, um, because I think both of those things, prayer and liturgical prayer, are an indispensable part of our life together in God and our spiritual formation into Christ-likeness. So the first quote I want to talk about is C.S. Lewis. Okay? C.S. Lewis on desire. This is from uh, The Weight of Glory and Other Addresses. He says this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So the suggestion here from Lewis is that the reason that we fool about with um, sinful desires is not that the gospel has nothing to offer us and so we're going to turn to more exciting pursuits, but rather that what the gospel offers to us, we don't understand the value of, right? We, we, infinite joy is offered to us, but we don't really know what that means and we don't really have an appetite for it because our appetites have been cultivated in other spaces, yeah? Uh, we're more comfortable with what we know. And so we're like, you know, the, the analogy I thought of, you know, C.S. Lewis said, you know, we're content making mud pies when hey, come on a vacation, you know, at the sea, and, and we don't even know what that means. We're like, I'm happy with the mud pies. Um, the other analogy I thought of is, you know, adults maybe who never outgrow their love of mac and cheese and hot dogs. 
right? Like that's like the epitome of fine cuisine. Yep, yep. I thought this analogy might get me in trouble, but I, I would just say, right, that uh, our tastes as kids are simple, but there is something good about expanding our horizons and learning to enjoy North African cuisine and, you know, different, uh, different um, right, Leah? Can I get a witness? Yeah. Uh, it's wonderful uh, spices that um, I was newly introduced to um, a few years ago. But, um, you know, French cuisine or, you know, Italian cuisine, when it's offered to us, we don't understand, like, the goodness of it. We say, like, I'd rather have the hot dog, you know, please. Um, and so it would seem, Lewis is suggesting that the gospel and the promises offered to us in the gospel are an acquired taste, and we have to learn to appreciate it and to, like, appropriate it. We have to learn to perceive it as good. And it doesn't automatically, immediately seem good to us because our desires have been shaped and formed in a certain way, in a certain direction over many, many years. So our longings, if you've been through DNA, you know that we talk a lot about belonging, security, and significance. These are the deep human longings that each of us have that are meant to be met in the gospel and in God, but they've been aimed in different directions, in our fear, in our insecurity about whether these things will be given to us and whether these things, and this is totally normal for us, right? We grow up as kids and uh, these things are not given to us perfectly by anybody, you know, no matter how wonderful the parents we do not have a, a, a 100% um, beautiful experience of growing up. And so in our fear and in our insecurity, we turn those desires towards other things. We all have this thing that happens to us, right? And so because of those things, those longings have been aimed in certain directions that we think will get those desires fulfilled, but they're often wrong. It, you know, the addiction is another metaphor here where the addict is... Their bodies, their brains are convinced that another drink is what I need, right? When no, actually, you know, you're, you're, you're ruining all your relationships because you can't, you think that you need another drink. Does that make sense? So like addictive behavior is the same kind of thing I think that C.S. Lewis is indicating um, is part of what is wrong with us, is that we aim these things in directions that um, can never fulfill the thing that we're hoping that they're going to do for us. Um, you know, that dopamine hit, you know, convinces your brain that this is good, but it's like, nope, that was just another like on social media, and that's not actually doing anything good for you, you know? So anyway, I think the question then becomes, how do we realign our desires with God and with reality? So let's read the second quote here from, uh, this is from Augustine. This is from a letter that he wrote. He was the Bishop of Hippo. This is from 430 AD, uh, older than C.S. Lewis. Why God should ask us to pray when he knows what we need before we ask him may perplex us if we do not realize that our, the Lord, our, our Lord and God does not want to know what we want, for he cannot fail to know it, but rather wants us to exercise our desires through our prayers so that we may be able to receive what he is preparing to give us. His gifts are very great indeed, but our capacity is too small and limited to receive it. The deeper our faith, the stronger our hope, the greater our desire, the larger will be our capacity to receive that gift, which is very great indeed. So here we're getting into the formational aspect of, uh, of prayer, right? So how, how do we overcome the fact that we are content to make mud pies um, in a slum when a holiday at sea is being offered to us? 
Well, that's part of what happens in prayer, is we learn to open our, or God actually works in us, to increase our capacity to receive the gifts that God wants to give us. We increase that capacity. And so those promises offered in the Gospels that Lewis talked about, we don't perceive them to be good, and we're actually not able to receive them unless we can engage in a process where God can enlarge our tent, so to speak, to use that Old Testament metaphor, to enlarge our capacity to receive the gifts that God wants to give. So prayer is not informing God of our needs, right? Um, God already knows what we need, but prayer, and prayer is not performing for God to earn brownie points, right, to prove to God that we really want it. That's, we're, we're not performing, we're saved by grace, and God encounters us by grace. Prayer is not also performing for others, I think is important to say. This is not like just a group belonging thing where we check it off the list and say, I've conformed to the group's expectations. Um, This is about communion with God. So prayer, in other words, is for us. It's not for God. God doesn't need our prayers. We need to pray, though. (laughs) Prayer is for us. Um, And this is how, as Augustine said, this is how we exercise our desires. Rather than... There's, there's other options that we could ha- do with our desires. Our desires, we could just trust them, right? We could just trust them to be good and follow them. So, again, to use the addict metaphor, I could just assume that when my body says, you need another drink, I just think, well, that's what I need, and I just go for it, right? Um, the other thing that we often do with our desires is we reject them. We uh, condemn them. We judge them. We distance ourselves from them. We say, that's bad, for me to want another drink, and so I need to figure out a way not to have another drink. Now, I will say, if you are an alcoholic or have any other you know, addictive behavior, it is important to stop the addictive behavior. But it's also important to get underneath the surface and say, what need am I trying to meet so that I can unearth some of this stuff? And I'm suggesting, and I think Augustine is as well, that part of what we're uh, doing when we pray is doing that work of unearthing, we're exercising our desires. We're bringing the things that we want instead of just trusting them and trying to get them for ourselves or not trusting them and rejecting them and condemning ourselves for having those desires. We bring them to God. We say, God, this is what I want. I don't know if this is good for me. I don't know if you want this for me, but I'm bringing it to you so we can talk about it. And you can give me some understanding about what this means. Why do I have this desire? What's going on in me that's causing me to lean towards this? But we have to be honest with God about it. And that's how we exercise those desires. We bring them to God to be discerned and shaped. Because, why? As Augustine said, in order to expand our capacity to receive the gifts God wants to give. Which is just growing into our life in God. So we say this a lot around here, but it's always worth repeating. That salvation is not a transaction we make with God. God's not a shopkeeper where we come in and we say, I don't have any money to pay. And God's like, well, here's the good thing anyway. No, God, God is our, to use the metaphor that Jesus uses, Father. We're in communion with God. God is the gift, <laughs> ultimately. Um, so salvation is not a transaction whereby we receive something from God. Salvation is a new life in God. It's a new kind of life. It's a life in God. So through the incarnation, Communion between God and humanity has been achieved and and it is a reality for us now, right now. For each of us in this room and for us as a community, we have communion with God. 
Our life, as Paul says, you know, if you're baptized, our life is now hidden with God in Christ. Or hidden with Christ in God. Mixed up the prepositions there. It's hidden with Christ in God. And this is the reason then. But that's, there's, there's something for us to do. So Paul says, therefore, set your hearts on things above. So does that make sense? So this is true, but we have to grow into our capacity to live it out, to live this life that we have been given as a gift. And um, in, you know, kind of taking that essence of who we are and moving it into the existence of our everyday lives. So this is the trajectory of our lives as Christians. And prayer is an essential part of how we, to use another New Testament metaphor, put off the old self and put on the new. How we bring our desires to God to be shaped Informed and how we expand our capacity to participate in the life that God shares with us through grace. So we pray because left to our own devices, even praying our own prayers, our desire for God will grow cold. And we need to learn to aim our desires at God so we can live, truly live. And we learn to do this in prayer because it's how we interact with God, which is what so many of you said earlier. So uh, let's pause there. Of the teaching. So... Yes, I, I, there, all kinds of prayer are, are helpful. Contemplative prayer, um, I'd love to teach a class on contemplative prayer. It's been profoundly helpful for me. Um, so there's all kinds of ways of praying that are helpful. I think that there is a unique helpfulness about liturgical prayer that most of us are unfamiliar with. And so therefore, that's kind of what we want to teach. And that's basically what's represented in the Book of Common Prayer. So... I think it's there for a couple reasons. So, so the question then becomes, well, why liturgical prayer? So if prayer in general is helpful, well, why not just do what I've normally done? Or why not just pray breath prayers, right? And again, all of that stuff is actually really helpful and really good and can be integrated into a format of liturgical prayer, which is what I, which is what I tend to do. Um, so I, I work it into a format of liturgical prayer because, this is the third quote then from, uh, from Augustine, Let us always desire the happy life from the Lord our God and always pray for it. But for this very reason, we turn our mind to the task of prayer at appointed hours. Since that desire grows lukewarm, so to speak, from our involvement in other concerns and occupations, we remind ourselves through the words of prayer to focus our attention on the object of our desire. Otherwise, the desire that began to grow lukewarm may grow chill altogether and may be totally extinguished unless it is repeatedly stirred into flame. So that again is Augustine talking about, I think, the value of prayer at appointed hours, but also turning our attention to the words of certain prayers, which I think is helpful for us because for a couple reasons. One, spontaneity is overrated, I think. Um, Spontaneity, most of us have been trained to think that spontaneity is the same thing as authenticity. It's the same thing as just um, it's, it's, you know, spontaneity is next to godliness for, for a lot of us, where if I just sort of say whatever's in my heart, that is the most authentic and true and best form of prayer. Um, but I think that's overrated. I think that's a good thing to do, but it, we tend to equate it with deep spirituality, but there's no inherent dichotomy between praying these words and praying from the heart. We can pray these words from the heart, and we can allow these words to shape and form our hearts, Okay. Um, you know, I mean, think about this in other areas of your life, right? How, like, how many, how many times have you listened to your favorite song? You know, does it, 
does it become ritualistic? Are you like, you know, should that stop? You should stop listening to that song, right? You're singing the same words over and over and over. Well, why? Because they mean something, right? They mean something to you, and, and they, they shape and form us, right? Um, so really, there's no such thing as dead liturgy. It's another way to say this. Um, liturgy is not, that's a category mistake. Liturgy is not dead or alive. Liturgy is good or bad, <laughs> right? And so we can have good prayers that shape and form us in good ways or, or bad prayers. And what, if we just pray whatever comes out of us, well, there's no guarantee that that's a good prayer, you know, <laughs> um, except for it would be maybe our exercising our desires. But our, our desires, part of the way that our desires are exercised is that we learn to shape and form through, um, those desires through prayer, through prayers that are given to us, through prayers that are, the church has said, this is wise. This is a, you know, church prayers that have stood the test of time have done so for a reason, that the church has said, this is a wise prayer for us to pray together. Um, the second reason is that we do need to learn how to pray. Um, the disciples assumed this when they said to Jesus, teach us to pray. How do we pray? Now, they were good Jewish boys, you know, they, they knew how to pray. But they saw something in the quality of Jesus' life that made them think, teach us how to pray. How do you do it? You know? And he gave them a prayer. It's a prayer that we pray every single Sunday. And if you engage in the daily office, you will pray it every single day, twice a day. Right? Or four times a day, if you pray, you know, midday prayer in Compline as well. Um, so we pray it every single day. Why? Because, well, the Lord gave it to us, and we assume that we need to learn something from this prayer. That there's some wisdom in us praying this prayer. These words. Asking for these things. There's wisdom. It teaches us. It trains us. It shapes us. It forms us. And so we, we don't, we don't want to pray only from our already formed desires. Does that make sense? Only from our desires as they are already shaped and formed. We want to learn how to expand those desires and pray more expansively, pray more wisely. So we need the words of others who have gone before us in faith. And we need to pray prayers that, from people who are wiser than we are so that we can become wise. Just a brief story uh, about that from me. Um, my uh, first experience I remember with the Book of Common Prayer, I, I remember picking one up. You know, I was a worship pastor at a, like a charismatic church um, since like 2000, well, basically like 2000. Um, and I've been doing that for a few years. And I ended up picking up a, um, a book of common prayer. But I can't remember why I heard about it or you know, what, I, what I knew about it. But I knew it was like these liturgical prayers that were starting to interest me and uh, entrance me a little bit. Um, and uh, my dad died suddenly in 2001. I was 25 years old. And... Um, I was, I was, you know, a long ways from home. And I remember I was living in Fort Wayne. My parents lived in Minnesota where I grew up. And so, you know, I got the call and Deb was already there visiting her family because her grandmother had died. And so I was like by myself, um, getting on a plane, you know, to come back from my dad's funeral, which was just a total shock. And I remember thinking to just pack, pack the book of common prayer in my bag. Because I was like, uh, I, I, don't know, I don't know what prompted me. But I realized on the plane, I, I took it out and started reading it on the plane because I realized that I didn't know what to say to God. I wasn't sure how to think about my dad's tragic death. I didn't, I didn't have any words. I didn't have any words to say. But I, I felt this longing to, to talk to God about this. But I, you know, I was like, I don't, know, I don't know what to say. I don't even know how I feel about this, right? So, so I was just in shock. Um, and so I just turned to the burial of the dead liturgy, 
I just read through it several times. And that was how I prayed. Like I got on the plane, and I remember just reading that liturgy, the prayers and the scripture selections I found in the Book of Common Prayer gave voice to my prayer in that season. And I found that I could pray if I just submitted myself to the prayers of the church to say, okay, this is what we do. This is what the liturgy offers to me. Um, I didn't know how to pray as someone grieving. This is the first sort of big grief that had ever happened in my life. I didn't know how to do anything. But this taught me how to grieve, how to avoid maybe some of the sentiments that we accidentally fall into when tragedy happens and we try to comfort each other and we do it so badly so many times, right? But the wisdom of the church was, was there for me to say, no, this is, this is what we do. This is how we pray uh, when, when someone we love has died. And it was really, really helpful for me. Um, I knew I could not pray well spontaneously uh, in that moment. Now, I still do pray spontaneously all the time. Most of my spontaneous prayers sound like this. Lord, help. <laughs> or have mercy. Or oh God. Right? That's a prayer. That's fine. Or wow. That's a prayer. That's fine too. But I also think there is some wisdom in learning to say our prayers. Um, even when we don't feel the need. So that we can learn to, again, expand our capacity to receive the gift that God wants to give, which is essentially communion. So um, those are two reasons that I think liturgical prayer is a helpful way for us to learn to pray. Um, there is a trust involved in it where you have to give yourself over to a practice over a season of time just to say, let's see how this goes. Um, because you're not always going to feel it. You're not always going to... Any new habit, right? There's, there's resistance built in if you're going to try to... I'm going to try to spend 15 minutes in prayer in the morning or 15 minutes in the evening. There's built-in resistance. It's true for all of us. Um, and so I'm just hoping that this can give us enough of a vision to get you through that initial discouragement um, to know that there's, there, is, there is some goodness waiting for us, you know, on the other side of learning to do this together. Okay? Yes, Mallory. Okay, well, I was just going to say, uh, I, I wanted to turn our attention to the assignment, if anybody's interested in doing it. So, yes, Mallory. Is this... Okay, good. Yeah, good. Yes. So, if you wanted to try the daily office this week, um, we'll talk more about this next week. But um, you, you may just want to write this down that we are in year one, okay? So remember the daily office lectionary, the scriptures are two-year cycles. We're in year one, which in the back of the BCP is on the left side. So you'll notice the, the daily office lectionary has readings for the third week of Easter, which is what we're in now. And it'll say on both sides, third week of Easter, but the left side is year one, the right side is year two, okay? So those are the scriptures. There's gonna be two Psalm readings, one's for the morning, on the left is for the morning, on the right is for the evening. And then there are three scriptures. Um, and you can read any of them, you know, at morning or evening office. Traditionally, you read the Old Testament and the Gospel during morning prayer. And you read the New Testament lesson during evening prayer. And you can also add the Old Testament lesson from the alternate year if you, you know, want to get an A plus in the class. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but yes. Yeah, yeah, Mallory, Mallory does for sure, so... I just wanted to throw that in for the, yes. Um, yeah. If we're, uh, if we're wanting to kind of like know 
No. Yeah, it's to- what we're doing on Sundays is this uh, women's lectionary. And so that is, that is totally different from um, the Revised Common Lectionary. So most years will be in the Revised Common Lectionary. We're doing this experiment this year. So, yep. it, yeah, not in, sometimes they're similar um, for like, I think the baptism of Christ is like, well, let's read about the baptism of Christ. Um, but, but they're often different. Yeah, so they're more different than they are the same. Okay, uh, feel free to ask questions. Email me this week if you have any, okay? But here's the assignment. Um, one of them is just play around with morning prayer and come with questions, okay, next week. Um, the second assignment is writing a collect, if you would like. So that's written out here for you. Um, but the, the overall process would be this. Reflect on your spiritual history and your life of prayer using these questions below. So what feelings come up for you? Uh, what feelings come up for you when you think about cultivating or adjusting a, a habit? of daily prayer, and what longings do you have as you think about your life in God, okay? So just take some time and write those things out, and then turn those things into a collect. A collect is a specific form of prayer uh, that's rooted in the pattern of prayer that um, the people of God have been praying for centuries, uh, according to Scripture, and they have that, that general formula there. There's first, an address of God. Second, a declaration of some attribute or action of God. Third, a specific request of God. Fourth, often, not always, the reason for the request and the hoped for result of the answered prayer, and then some kind of Trinitarian or Christological ending. And an amen. There's always an amen. Um, So I gave you an example from the Book of Common Prayer. This is actually the the prayer, the collect that we will pray in worship in just a few moments. And so this is the prayer of the whole week. And so when you get to the point in in morning prayer where it says collect of the day, it's this prayer. We We pray it every day this week. Um, and it's this. So, O God, whose blessed Son made himself known to his disciples in the breaking of bread, open the eyes of our faith that we may behold him in all his redeeming work who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So, God is addressed, O God, right? Sometimes it's a little bit more flourished, but that's the basic, that's the simplest way is to just say, O God, you know? <laughs> um, and then here's the attribute or action of God, whose blessed Son made himself known to the disciples in the breaking of bread. That's an Easter theme, right? That happened on the road to Emmaus. Now here's the request. Open the eyes of our faith that we may behold him. Who? Jesus, the son, in all his redeeming work. And then there's the Trinitarian. um, uh, Oh, so open the eyes of our faith is the request, but it's also why? That we may behold him. Or here's here's the hopeful result. God, if you would open the eyes of our faith, we would be able to behold Jesus in all his redeeming work. And that would be a good thing for us. So this is the way that our the prayer shapes us, to know that, okay, this is a, I can pray for the eyes of my faith to be opened, and it would be a good thing for me to behold Jesus in all his redeeming work. So yeah, Lord, let's do it. And then it ends with that Trinitarian uh, formula that's uh, quite common. So you can see lots of examples, if you want, in the BCP. Just look up that section called The Collects, and you can see lots of examples of a collect. Um, It starts on page 211. And use that to just write your own collect, if you would like. So, And this could just be your expression to God of your own desires for your life of prayer. What do you want? What's your request, right? And shape it into this format and uh, see what that does for you, okay? So... Does that sound good? All right. Yes, another question? Yes. 